This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum podcast on Open Pediatrics. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Robert Tasker. Dr. Tasker is the Editor-in-Chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. He's also the Professor of Anesthesia and Founding Chair in Neurocritical Care at Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital, where he is currently also a Senior Associate in the Department of Anesthesiology, Critical Care, and Pain Medicine. Robert, welcome back to Open Pediatrics. Thank you for having me. It's a wonderful opportunity to meet with you again. Robert, as you know, this is a regular feature of the podcast that we have a chat with you as the editor-in-chief of the journal Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. And for today, we're going to cover January to June of 2023. We're recording this on May 31st in 2023. Tomorrow, the June issue of the journal will appear. I'd like to begin the conversation by asking you about a unique feature that you introduced, and that is editor's choice. I don't think I've ever seen this in another journal. And yet, it's the first thing that I go to when I read the journal. Where did the idea come from, and what do you think the significance of it is? Well, my personal view is that I just want to make things easy for people who read the journal now. Uh, Reading has changed in past times. People would have picked up a journal, read it cover to cover. I think now what's happening is people are reading a sort of synopsis and they'll remember, okay, yes, I, I saw a paper or a highlighted paper on that. And then they would be inclined, I hope, to go back to that topic when it arises as a clinical question. So that was the sort of vision to bring together material that I thought answered important clinical questions. So on the header for each of my choices, either make them what questions or why questions or how questions, you know, what is it that the authors are trying to answer here? And what is it that as readers we should be and clinicians we should be aware of? So that's where the idea came from. Well, you know, I think it's very creative. And and as I said, I find it personally very helpful. Your connections, when you say, now go back and, you know, read these papers and you'll see thematically. And so now I can't help but think about the current survey of these first six months of 2023. So Jeff, perhaps I can just interrupt. So the connections is slightly different in that that is a definitely educational perspective. As you've pointed out, you know, there's the choices And then there's the connections, and the connections are geared towards readers and pointing out, look, there's this paper or there's this systematic review in this issue. And don't forget, you know, last month or last year, we saw this other material and just go back to that as well. I think there will be more of this when we become more and more electronic in the way that we handle literature, that you would hope that journal publishers would do all this for you in the background. I'm just sort of highlighting stuff that are the connections for me. What thematic domains should we be discussing in the first six months of the journal, January to June of 2023? I think on a previous occasion, I told you about my grid I think that was the last one. I try and keep the themes within that grid. So the sort of themes that I got are organization and workflow, outcomes, respiratory and acute respiratory distress syndrome, and interventions and monitoring. So, for example, 
you know, what I mean by organization and workflow. In January, we had a database study from the PICE group in the Netherlands talking about adverse events in patients that they were seeing on the PICU that they assumed were low risk because of their severity of illness score. And what was the consequence or significance of adverse events? In the April, very important article that I highlighted on staff health and from a psychological perspective, you know, just asking the question, how was work today? And Gillian Colville, a psychologist, wrote the editorial. In May, there was a focus on rounds and goal setting. So I consider all of that organization and workflow. And so for people who don't have time to read the things, just to be aware that they're there. And if they want to go back, they can scan through and say, okay, I'm going to look at this, this, and this. The surprise that I've got for you in June, it's not really a surprise, but the article that I've highlighted in this domain in June is on the issue of complex long-stay patients on the PICU and whether they should have a primary team and which units across the U.S. have teams. So this is a very straightforward study, a survey of 72 fellowship programs across the United States, and just asking, what do you do for this group of patients? And, you know, let's learn from each other and let's have an idea. So that's what I put in the organization workflow domain. Of course, I've had the privilege of reading this material months ago and enjoying it already. That's what comes out tomorrow. Well, Robert, you and I have been colleagues for more than 10 years, and so I know your clinical practice, and one of your traits is you're so enthusiastic, and I can hear it here. You're so enthusiastic about this literature. Is there a domain in particular in our field that really grabs you, besides neurocritical care, of course? I guess the other domain is respiratory. I trained in the UK in the days when you had to be a pulmonologist before they would let you on the ICU, unless you were an anesthesiologist. So. I saw the light, of course, when I came to the US and got a full training. But, you know, I started in respiratory medicine and I like to know what is going on in respiratory critical care. And February was a very, very big month for the journal. The PALIC pediatric ARDS PALIC 2 guidelines and recommendations came out as a sort of big spread for the SCCM meeting. So very important. And in June, you know, we've got two things that I love about respiratory. The first is a bit of physiology, and there's been a focus on diaphragm in the journal. And we've got a study on electrophysiology, non-invasive of the diaphragm in patients who are either mechanically ventilated or on non-invasive ventilation, mainly with bronchiolitis, and looking at tonic diaphragmatic activity during expiration. You know, ultimately, this is going to quantify for us, I hope, work of breathing. It always seems a bit airy to me when someone says work of breathing is increased. I don't quite know what they mean. I want a measurement or, or something. Anyway, so I'm very supportive. The more acute physiology that we have in the ICU, very, very supportive of that. And then in the June issue, probably in the respiratory section, probably I think it's going to be one of the most important articles that we will have published in 2023. And 
you remember that there's been a lot in the literature about discrepancy between the saturation by pulse oximetry, SpO2, and the saturation from co-oximetry in the blood gas, the SaO2, particularly in adults with COVID. And the companies that make, and I have no shares in any company that makes oximetry devices, but the companies uh, have to meet certain criteria by the FDA. The bias between SaO2 and SpO2 has to be plus or minus 4% in any value greater than 80%. And the device has to be studied and validated in a population that represents the U.S., population, so at least 15% Black. And what COVID showed us was that there was a discrepancy greater than this. And, you know, if you take a value of 90%, the saturation could be anything between 86 and 94%. So we may be misled. So in the June issue, we have a COVID-19 paper, pediatric, single center, 2,700 patients, SAO2, SPO2, 61% Black population, and quantifying the bias. Seeing this report has been a game changer for me. I have gone back to authors that have sent in anything where they calculate a severity of illness or categorize patients based on SPO2 to absolutely make sure that we're not missing true hypoxemia in groups of patients or that we're overstating hypoxemia. And any scoring system that involves SpO2, I've asked our authors to do some sort of sensitivity analysis so that we can work out what's going on. So that's the respiratory section. I think it's very important. We need to see more of this because it is our bread and butter work. It's what we do every day. And so we all do need to be up to date with this. Robert, that's wonderful. You know, studies, as you know, going back nearly 20 years, show that pulse oximetry tends to overestimate the amount of oxygen a patient with darker skin may actually have. And yet as a field, it wasn't really until recently, the last 12, 18 months, that I think we're really starting to get hold of this and pay more attention to it. And so it's wonderful to hear that. I also have to say that- Jeff, Jeff, in my editor's choice, I highlight a website, which is the FDA- November 2022 meeting where they discussed all of this and actually turned the question around and say the field has to look into this and we've got to have some answers that gives us valid measurement. Sorry for interrupting. No, not at all. You summarize it well. It needs more focus on us. The other thing I have to give a shout out is Dr. Ravi Kamani gave this podcast in February 28th of this year, 2023, talking about the PALIC guidelines. And one of the things we touched upon at the end was this, you know, so-called P-SILI, this patient self-inflicted lung injury, which I'm sure we're going to change the name of this eventually, because of course the patient's not intending to inflict themselves. But back to your point about really being more methodical about measuring and understanding work of breathing. And of course, in P-SILI, patient self-inflicted lung injury, what we're doing is missing, especially on patients on non-invasive ventilation, overdistension, lung injury, because we're not appreciating really diaphragmatic function and its role here. 
And so that too, I think, is another indication that PCCM is really addressing some of the pressing unknown gaps where we're knowledgeable enough to know we don't know enough in these areas and we've got to understand them better. I mean, that gives me, I've been sort of toying with this idea in my own mind because reading has changed. Reading has definitely changed in that we don't sit down and go cover to cover. So I'm thinking of introducing a section, a one pager, which I'm going to call something like PCCM Digest or something, and just have a one page figure and a little bit of text or as a summary of all the articles that we've had on ARDS that that covers all that you've mentioned, you know, the immune compromise, the non-invasive, the systematic reviews, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at the June issue, come out tomorrow, the PCCM connections section is all about PICU in low and middle income settings. So we've got the SCCM Pediatric Sepsis Definition Task Force article about sepsis in low and middle income countries. I add to this the theme of work that we've had in 2021 uh, from the Kenya-Seattle Collaborative about the ICU in Kenya, the South Africa PIM studies in 2022, the Uganda-Kenya febrile illness study in 2022. And this month, we also have a report from the first PICU in Malawi, 531 cases, 28% mortality, all worth a reading. And, you know, I know this is going out to an international group worldwide. So, you know, that's there for everyone to scan through the journals and focus on this topic. Robert, this notion that you just mentioned of developing a new feature of distilling, for example, all of the respiratory studies, review articles, commentary, et cetera, into one formatted place, I would strongly encourage, you know, obviously we could all search through PubMed and, you know, find the, the important papers, but especially if it was an annotated bibliography, perhaps inviting one or two experts and say, can you summarize in two sentences, you know, this list of 30 publications would be a great service and knowledge transfer. I think reading and writing has changed. I think that people now read in the moment. They've got a difficult case that they're dealing with, they're thinking about, and they do due, due diligence and will search the literature and get an update on what is the latest thing? I think some people might be slightly ahead of the game if they've kept up to date with the journal and they'll sort of say, yes, I did read something about this in such and such a journal, and I'll go back to that. So I think that's the format. The survey that the society and the publishers have done shows us that the next generation does not read the journal cover to cover. But if you look at the number of instances that people go to the journal and go to papers, it's huge. So, you know, that means a lot to me that we have to have the material, but it has to be curated in a way that's accessible for people who want information in the moment. You know, if you've got a difficult case of traumatic brain injury and you want to know something 
that's when you're going to look at the recent literature, keeping up to date with everything. It's just getting so huge now. Well, we've got this time with you. Are there other themes that the editor-in-chief wants to highlight for us in the January to June issues of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine? Yes, definitely. I think that organization and just the management of numbers and knowing more of what it is we deal with in a way that's helpful to readers. We see a lot of epidemiology in the journal, but I would quite like groups that are doing database research to produce for me numbers. I want to know what is the average length of stay of someone who is mechanically ventilated in 2022 in the United States, in the UK, in the Netherlands, wherever, to give us a realistic idea of what is now. What something was like 10 years ago doesn't really help me because I think things have changed far too rapidly. I think in the organization area, discharge home from the PICU, we need to know more about that. You know, some units are doing this. We've seen systematic reviews, but we need to actually know what units are doing. Early mobilization, I've seen privileged information that will come out later this year. But, you know, who is doing this? Who is implementing early mobilization on the ICU? Goal setting, daily goal setting. There have been papers from Boston. There have been papers from Canada, from Karen Chung. And, you know, there are papers from the Johns Hopkins. So there's a lot of interest in this. But I think we need to know more about this at a granular level as to how it works. And then discussion of prognosis and goals of care. We've seen systematic reviews on this. And you get the impression that we're either doing it well or we're not doing it well at all. And I think we need to know more about these areas. This isn't my particular domain of research, but I read this with interest and I can sort of see how it's directly relevant to my experience. So, you know, that's just one area that keeps coming up. Could we shift the gears a little bit and talk about two other issues? Chat GPT. Are you reaching the point as the editor where you feel you have to put some guidance into submissions about potential use of these large language learning databases and machine learning? Yeah, it's a great question. Our publishers have put guidance on ChatGPT. I have a reasonable awareness of trying to identify things that have been written by ChatGPT. You know, basically, the references aren't up to date. The <laughs> There's never never a reference to PCCM, <laughs> which usually means that an algorithm has done the references. You know, this is not a reader of PCCM. Otherwise, I can't see why they wouldn't be quoting that. So, you know, that's the one side. I gave a talk maybe two or three years ago where I made people aware that, you know, the other side of ChatGPT isn't only that authors might be using ChatGPT, but journals and editors might start using ChatGPT to reject an article, just scan it through, and that's it, without any personal touch. 
and be careful what you wish for is my <laughs> warning. Because at the moment I read everything, at least you've got a human reading the thing, but we're not sort of far short of deciding what the decision rules are and just rejecting based on an electronic algorithm. And could I ask you this? You've mentioned your matrix several times. You generously shared it with me and I've shown it to different audiences where I've been speaking and where you have a large, almost 12 by 12 matrix of concepts in our field versus submissions, et cetera, and where the gaps are. Can I ask you where the gaps are in our field in this way? As you well know, this was originally framed by the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine in the United States. And they used a framework that I find very helpful. They said that healthcare should be safe, it should be effective, it should be efficient, and it should be equitable. And so with your view of the field right now, if I ask you to back out of your 12 by 12 table on where the gaps are on submissions and publications and go to the wider lens, where are we doing well as a field in the recent time in terms of studying efficacy or efficiency or safety, or are we doing pretty well in all those domains, or are we short in one of those domains? So I think one of the things I recognize now is that the field has moved on quite considerably, and we publish one quarter of the papers in the field of pediatric critical care medicine that there are. The other three quarters are going to other journals. Now, you can take that two ways. I think that if I was a fellow or a junior attending, to me, it would seem logical that I would get PCCM and study it once a month. It's an efficient way of getting through one quarter of the material that's out there. Now, what do we do about the other three quarters? Well, you know, against my original concept, I had thought we would have less editorial material. We've actually gone for more editorial material. And this is because I want to make sure that we're not only getting good content in the journal, but if our experts who are writing the editorials also identify other contemporary material in other journals that need to be highlighted, that's the place to do it. You know, people doing randomized controlled trials, doing big comparative effectiveness trials, they're going to send to JAMA. And I would as well. You know, JAMA to me is the best journal on the planet, the whole network of JAMA articles. So it would go to JAMA. But I would expect my sort of editorial writers to at least be telling us. I've sort of tried to do this in a section called PCCM clinical trials, where there was the first ABC non-invasive ventilation, either a step up or step down in acute respiratory failure was published in JAMA and two clinical trials. And I asked a couple of our editorialists who had sort of been a bit cagey about whether or not they would recommend non-invasive ventilation in an editorial that they had written two years ago. I said, now you've got the clinical trials, what's your view? So I got them to write, and then I sent their content of what they were going to write to the authors of the clinical trial and said, you tell me two things. 
what do you think about this response to the trials? And two, tell me, are you using non-invasive ventilation on your unit today? Step up or step down? Has the trial made a difference? I think providing a broad view and hopefully covering everything that you've sort of mentioned, sort of safety, quality, efficacy, because, you know, we just don't get that other material. We get a lot of material that's more focused on early stage research, exploratory research, detailed physiology that other journals are not necessarily going to focus on. Well, I will say this, that in my own reading over time, I go to the editorials much sooner than I ever did in the past, increasingly over time, rely on it for the reasons that you said, and for fear of leaving somebody out. Robert, we just have a few minutes left, and we're approaching, at least in the United States, graduation time for the current third-year class of pediatric critical care fellows. I've mentored several of them in really terrific projects for their scholarly oversight committee obligations. Where should they be thinking about publishing? You know, you've mentioned, you know, appropriately so, that the number of submissions you're getting is overwhelming your ability to accept manuscripts. On the other hand, these bright ideas, as Thomas Kuhn and others have said, you know, are going to come from the younger generation. Where should the young investigator be thinking about publishing their studies? I would hope that they would consider pediatric critical care medicine. You know, young investigators need good mentors to help them through the publication process. And, you know, sometimes shorter is better. That's my advice. Getting a short, succinct, tightly written article just looks well done. There are, of course, other journals, you know, exploratory journals. There's critical care explorations. There's intensive care medicine explorations or ICMX. There's Frontiers in Pediatrics, which is a general pediatric journal. There are lots of journals. I like the idea of people contacting me, sending me a brief synopsis. I like to know numbers. How many patients? When was this done? What was the idea? And I would give an honest approach about, you know, saying, well, I think you could probably do this in 1500 words. So there are lots of opportunities that are out there. I guess my recommendation would be have your work well mentored. And when I give my talk about writing, I also show the number of journals that I've been rejected from. <laughs> and it fills a slide. <laughs> so, you know, it comes to us all. And it's a matter of learning. Well, Robert C. Tasker, Editor-in-Chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, thank you for being with us again on Open Pediatrics so that we can catch up with the Editor-in-Chief and the journal. Robert, the dust isn't settling on you. I think I speak for many of us around the world who so appreciate the innovation, the care, the attention, the diligence that you're bringing to this job as Pat Ohanek did before you, and you're an important anchor to the field. And so thank you for all your efforts, and we look forward to having you back on Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum podcast. Thank you very much. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. You can find the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast in the description. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information. 